0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the New Books Network. This is Shuan, your episode um, host. Today, I feel very happy to invite Dr. Uh, Hongwei Bao to join us to introduce his newest book, Contemporary Chinese Queer Performance. So the first question today I, I want to ask to Dr. Bao is, that, um, to, is to ask you to introduce yourself to our audience
2: yeah sure thank you very much Shua, for this uh wonderful opportunity to share my book with the audience this is actually my third time to be with the new books network so the first two times was for my first two books queer comrades and queer trainer and i did interviews with your colleague laurie dickmeyer so it's my pleasure to come back here so uh for brief introduction uh, my name's Hong Wei Bao. I'm an associate professor in media studies at University Nottingham, UK. I'm a queer Chinese researcher. So I research China's queer history, culture, and community primarily in the post mao era from 1970s, 80s to, to the present. So write on different aspects of queer community history from the kind of History of Political Activism in Queer commerce to Visual and Literary Cultures in Queer China, to Media and Communication in my third book, Queer Media in China, and today we're talking about my fourth book, which is focusing on uh, queer theatre and performance.
1: Oh, thank you so much, you So the Next question I want to ask is that I'm wondering why you're interested in, in the promising field of queer study, especially in, in China. Uh,
2: that's a great question. I can give you a uh, kind of more official answer, that, uh, an informal answer. I think I'll start with a kind of informal answer, which is that uh, I identify as gay or queer and uh, I. You know, when I was born in the 70s in China and uh, grew up in the 80s, 90s, and early two thousand in China, uh, and being gay wasn't particularly widely known or accepted in Chinese society at that time. And now the process situation is probably, probably slightly better for younger generation of queer people. But for my generation of people, it took a lot of courage and also also emotional struggles to realize and to come to terms with one's gay identity. But after knowing that one really wanted to do something actually to express oneself, I remember I was a university student in the early 2000s at Peking university and attended a lecture. Uh, given by Professor Li Yinghe. For those who don't know, Li Yinghe is one of the most important sexologists and queer theories, queer theory scholar in mainland China. So her speech, her lecture, gave me a lot of confidence and courage. And then. After uh, working in China at a theater academy, this will bring uh, us to my interest, my long-standing interest in theater and performance. So I worked in a theater academy in Beijing for a few years before I applied for a PhD program in Australia. When I go to Australia, I was starting to do my PhD on a different topic but uh, I so lost my motivation. I felt I need to find something that I'm emotionally invested that can sustain my research interest for at least four years. So at that time it turned out that uh, a queer filmmaker, writer, and activist in was visiting Australia at that time. So I talked to Switzerland and he gave me a lot of inspiration. I started to change my research topic and switch to a queer topic, I was fortunately at that time situated in a very queer-friendly department, which is Department of Gender and Cultural Studies at University of Sydney, Australia. So the teachers and colleagues and fellow PhD students were very supportive. And I got to know that actually doing queer research is a perfectly legit, legitimate thing to do for a researcher. So you don't have to hide your own subjectivity and you can actually really write about things you are interested in. At the same time, there is a need actually for the kind of insider perspectives or from the kind of participants observer's perspective into Chinese queer culture. So before that, most of the queer Chinese research were conducted by ethnographers or sociologists from outside mainland China. And I felt that I had something to say. So I went back to China and did my fieldwork in cities such as Beijing, Shanghai, and Guangzhou. And of course, while I was doing my PhD, uh, people already advised me that if you choose a queer topic, then it's likely that you won't find a job after graduation, or at least have difficulty finding a job. I didn't consider those, but when I finished my PhD thesis, that was a realization that not many universities in the world have gender studies or queer studies departments. And most Chinese studies departments actually don't necessarily need a queer studies researcher. So I looked for jobs in Australia and later in Germany. And then later life brought me to the UK and I got a job at a UK University, another UK university, and then I've been teaching at Nottingham University for more than 10 years. So that's how everything started. So that's partly anecdotal, but uh, partly actually that also speaks to a kind of a kind of personal, emotional entanglement or investment in a research topic, as well as a need to address this topic. And in particular, the topic hasn't been wasn't studied much while I was researching on the topic. And at the moment when queer culture in China was, in a way, was under serious constraint, there is a kind of need, there is a necessity to conduct that research. So that's why that after my PhD for 10 years or longer, I'm still working on the same topic.
1: Okay. Thank you so much for your answer. So now let's turn to your book. So for your book, my first question is that I want to invite you to talk about the meaning of queer in contemporary Chinese society through the lens of photograph Ren Hang's life and work.
2: That's a great question. So I'll talk about Ren Hang in a minute. But uh, let's come to the term queer. So let me first clarify that uh, there are more terms to refer to uh, gender, sexual identity, or minorities in Chinese language than the term queer. Queer is only one of those terms. So queer is usually translated into kuar, a transliteration of the English term. But there are also terms such as tong xin lian, homosexual, uh, uh, tong zhi comrades. And my first book is about uh, the comrade identity. And then there's also LGBT, LGBTQ plus, um, uh, uh, MSM, and so on and so forth. So queer is only one of those terms. And even when people use the same term queer, they sometimes mean different things. For example, in academia and in arts and culture, people usually understand queer as a kind of anti-identitarian or post-identitarian theory, which opposes a kind of gay identity politics. And But for most people in China, especially those younger generation alike, Queer is often understood as a kind of use, uh, fashionable lifestyle that one can wear through fashion, through lifestyle choice, and so on. And also, that a lot of companies actually also do a lot of pink marketing or queer baiting. So they depict queerness as a kind of fashionable and desirable lifestyle. So there are more meanings of queer in Chinese society than we acknowledge, that we know. But when I talk about Zhen Hong, in a way, especially using Zhen Hong's artworks, photography as the opening chapter, I want to expand on this notion of queer and how I understand the term queer. And Zhen Hong, as some of you may know, is or uh, was well, a queer photographer, he committed suicide about five or six years ago and he produced many wonderful artworks and poems uh, and so on. So to assemble this chapter, I interviewed some of jung former friends uh, and colleagues as well as used some of his old photos. So by analyzing his photos and analyzing actually his Friend's memory of him. And I try to say that queerness for Ren Heng is more of a kind of a way of life. It's not kind of youth and fashionable and consumer identity. It is a kind of lifestyle that is resistant to social norms. And this social norm can be heterosexual social norm, it can also be the kind of homosexual. A identity-centered lifestyle. So rather, it's a, it is a decentered a resistant, a radical form of identity that raises definition.
1: Okay, thanks so much for your answer. So for the next question, I want to invite you to talk about the global post-socialist conditions have shaped narrative and reception of two queer films, Lan Yu, and come out.
2: Mm-hmm. yep. So I chose two films for my second chapter, but those two films are, in a way, surprising choices. Probably many people know about Lan Yu. So Lan Yu was originally an online queer novel called Beijing Gu or Beijing Story, and it was adapted to the film by Stanley Quan in 2001. I think this, uh, this year, in the, pa- in the past two years, actually, it's... 4K restoration version have just come out, so which is a wonderful film and I highly recommend it. So that's a more familiar queer story for Chinese audiences. And the other film, Coming Out, is a German film, and to be exact it is a East German film. So the film was made in, 2008, uh, in 1989, before the fall of the Berlin Wall, even the film's premiere occurred on the night of the For the Berlin Wall. So the two films, very few people actually put the film together and analyze it, that was my bold move to compare and have a kind of transnational, transcultural reading of those two films, juxtaposing it in the kind of post-socialist historical conditions. Because the two films' main narratives all surround coming out experience under socialism and they were all set in this kind of post-socialist and post-1989 context in which gay identity is framed in a singular way. However, in the two films, it seemed that uh, the message is more multiple and is more ambivalent. At least the two protagonists in the films all try to reconcile their gay identity with their belief in socialism. So this is more kind of allegorical reading, trying to figure out the kind of structural feelings of post-socialism that shape the kind of content and the audience reception of the two films.
1: Okay, thank you so much for your answer. For the next question, I want to to talk about cultural cultural specificity of queer activism in China in the case of Beijing Queer Curves.
2: Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. Beijing Queer Chorus is not the only queer choir in China. So almost in every city, every major big city, there is a queer choir. So once in Shanghai, there is a Chinese queer choir uh, competition. So about eight queer choirs appear. Of course, some are more visible and some are more hidden. So a lot of them don't call themselves explicitly Queer Choir, yet its members were LGBTQ plus identified or at least queer-friendly. So the case study I'm using is Beijing Queer Chorus, and they're still active now. So they still perform in Beijing, in different, different venues, such as bookshops, etc. Of course, it's difficult for them to get a place in official theatres and concert halls. But there's still a space actually for them to uh, to uh, uh, to perform to a community audience as well as a general public. I interviewed some of the choir members and they call their activism as a kind of a hidden activism, which I call cultural activism. They were saying that. We are doing activism, but we're not parading our identities. We're not saying, let's support gay rights. We are actually using our beautiful voice and to make people understand us, relate to us better. So this is why their slogan is called, gently change the world with singing. So singing is for them, a way of activism. It's not the type of activism that relies on visibility. It's not relying on the kind of a fixed identity rather it's based on the cultural politics of affect and communication. This seems to me to be very important because in queer studies, everybody talks about queer visibility, but what is that we consider queerness to be a kind of audible thing. So we think about queer activism in terms of audibility. So what kind of insight can we gain from this? And also this will be one of my key messages in the book, which is the art and culture is an important form of queer activism in contemporary China in the context where more explicit and confrontational type of queer activism, such as marching, or marching on the streets and demanding social change and policy change isn't possible. And this form of cultural activism actually expands political imaginations about identities and politics. It also deepens our understandings of political engagement in
1: the contemporary Chinese context. Okay, thank you so much for your answer again. So for another question, I'm wondering, why do you talk about queer filmmaker Fan Popo's Documentary, film, and activist practice.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, Fan Po Po is one of the most famous Chinese queer filmmakers from the PRC. So now he lives in Berlin for a very simple reason because 10 years ago, he took China's media censor, which is state administration of radio, film, and television, to court. And after that, he would have difficulty getting a job or getting screening opportunities inside China. So his move to Berlin was pretty much kind uh, of self-exile, forced by the conditions that he was was in. So my chapter was pretty much about his Beijing years or the documentary films that he made while in Beijing, working with China's queer communities to do community activism through films. And of course, now he's in Berlin, and he's making a different kind of film. He's making queer fiction films with very strong experimental and intercultural elements, which I strongly recommend as well. But that's not the focus of of this chapter. And in my last chapter of this book, I'll revisit Van Pukul's recent films, which is about intercultural communication. But uh, let's go back to his documentary films. While in Beijing, Fan Po Po was a very active member of Beijing's queer community. He co-organized the Beijing Queer Film Festival. He was one of the founding members of the China Independent Queer Film Tour. What he did was basically combining filmmaking with community activism. And one of the things I observed is that most of his films has a very strong performative and theatrical element, which is they often combine theater performance with filmmaking. So the example that I like to use is the 2009 film, New Beijing, New Marriage, which is basically about kind of same-sex wedding in central Beijing in Tianmen district. So what's interesting is that uh, it is a form of performance queer activism, but that queer activism took the form of performance art. So a gay couple and a lesbian couple were taking wedding photos in the public on Tiananmen street. So that's a type of performance art at the same time and uh, David Jung also interviewed the passersby spy about their responses to gay rights and same-sex marriage in China. And this film, you know, when made, was circulated online and in film festivals and community screenings, etc. to attract wider attention to the issue. So in a way, the kind of combination of theater and performance was important form of queer activism because it made activism more interesting. It also made films more interesting. But of course, the condition was that in China, the kind of more explicit form of activism on marching around the street was impossible. So you have to find some kind of disguise. So in a way, this kind of performing on Tiananmen Street as queer couples is a kind of spectacular performative action that is usually not read as a form of activism that uh, didn't attract so much political attention therefore it was possible although the activism was conducted in 2009 now the situation in china has changed dramatically and this type of activism is no longer possible but even that i mean using this i'm trying to showcase the creativity of queer activists in China, how they are using different cultural forms such as theater, performance, contemporary art to, to talk about their identity and to raise the public awareness of gender and sexual diversity as well as LGBTQ people's needs and demands.
1: Slash NBN50 to get 50% off. Thanks so much for your answer. Again, for the next question, I want to talk about the production of Chestnuts. Sorry, sorry. I want to talk about the uh, production of Easter Palace, West Palace, and the National and the transcultural travel of global avant garde theater and the queer culture.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh Let's talk about. Uh... East Palace, West Palace first. So most people know East Palace, West Palace to be a film, 1996 film by Zhang Yuan. And before that, Wang Xiaobo wrote a novella called Qing Tender Like Water. And then Zhang Yuan and Wang Xiaobo together adapted that into a theater script and a film script. So that became the film. So those two texts are probably better known. Both uh, for literary text and the film text. And uh, the film was was screened overseas, and it was banned in China and brought showing some trouble, but that's a different story. What's interesting about the film adaptation is that it's still a very tamed representation, I would say. Those who are familiar with the story of East Palace, West Palace, know that there is a lot of police violence in that film. So because the film is basically about kind of one-night interrogation of a gay man at a police station. So, in fact, the film version made it very subtle and beautiful and poetic. Mm-hmm. But uh, in 2005, a French director, at that time based in Beijing, uh, Xavier Fronron, who leads the La de des croix so he enacted the performance. He directed a real life uh, kind of theater version of the show using the original script and moving all the police brutality on stage. And you can imagine the shock of the audience. Even Ying attended the show, and Yinghe's comment was, It's not beautiful or bumbei. So that's, uh, that aside, I'm trying to demonstrate actually how Western avant-garde theater actually was introduced to China. This is not the first time, but this was a a time actually that a French avant-garde theater director tried to use the kind of Western concepts to enact a Chinese play. So the idea was very much influenced by Antoni Ahto's uh, theater cruelty. So by exposing the kind of brutality on stage. It will invoke a kind of visceral reaction on the part of the audience. And hopefully that will kind of inspire some kind of strength activism and so on and so forth. So this strategy this strategy worked and did not work. It worked because it did move or rather shocked some audience members. But it wasn't it didn't work because it brought them a lot of trouble, and Xavier Forman was basically detained and then had to be sent back to France and never returned to China again, etc. So what's interesting was his, his experiment of using art forms to represent queer life, and that representation was pretty much based on the western uh, concepts in western avant-garde theater as well as BDSM because basically actually the scene and the police dress was very much based on the kind of uh, leather and BDSM uh, subculture. So the play... It's difficult to assess the the play, the success or not the lack of of the play, but it was an important, you know, a chapter of China's queer theater because, after all, a kind of Chinese queer play was, in a way, enacted in, in a way that a Western queer play would be. But unfortunately, actually, in the context of the 2005 and 2007 China, the condition wasn't ripe for that type of representation. So that further raises the issue of the politics of transnationalism, the politics of cultural translation. To what extent do Western avant-garde theater as well as queer culture be directly transported or transposed in a Chinese context. Okay, thank you so much for your answer.
1: For the next question, I want to invite you to talk about the production of a transnational documentary theater about my parents and their child, and how the play helped generate a queer public sphere in urban China. Mm-hmm. Uh,
2: yes, so uh, the play's title is about my parents and their child. The child is singular because it refers to the one-child policy in China. So the Chinese title is 关于我父母和他们的孩子. So the play was performed in two Chinese cities. I think 2016 in Beijing and 2017 yes, 17 in Shanghai. So... Uh, the play was basically a kind of joint production between Ipsy International, a Norway theatre agency, as well as a Chinese theatre companies and festivals, such as Nanluoguxiang uh, Festival. So the play isn't identified or isn't labeled a queer one, but. Uh, as the production team, the cast, and the audience involve a lot of queer community members. So it has a very strong queer element to the play. What's also interesting that it was one of the first times that documentary theatre as an avant-garde theatre form was introduced to China. So for those who don't know, a documentary theatre is one of those a type of theater where you get your scripts from real life through interviews, through people's testimonials, etc. So it's kind of re-enactment of the real-life situations. And the actors usually, the performers usually, also actually narrate their own stories. So it's it's a kind of more non-fiction, non-fiction type of theater. And uh, it also uses a lot of what we uh, in recent years digital and transmedia elements. What's also interesting about the play is that, uh, so it dramatizes the relationship between Chinese children and their parents. So this seems to be a kind of personal and individual issue. But in China, actually, this often is a social issue because parents and children grow up in different different historical contexts. They have different understandings of what is a better life and how do one survive or in society or live a better life in society. So by presenting those different perspectives on stage, and inviting the audience actually to, you know, to engage with a play. So uh, the play itself actually creates a kind of dialogical space for queer and non-queer audiences, for uh, people from the older generation and younger generation to start to understand each other, at least to understand where people come from. So I think that is in, is important. So it is not uh, an explicit, in a way, queer play, but it's very queer. It is not a political play, but there are many political and social issues. So this seems to me to be to be a strategy where many many art and cultural production work in China, they engage with serious political and social issues, but in a more subtle way. It's almost like they smuggle all those serious topics and discussions into the kind of lighthearted format. This is a strategy of cultural activism that I'm continuing to grapple with.
1: Okay. Thank you so much for your answer. So for the last question, also the last question today, I want to you talk about three instances of digital performance created by queer Chinese artists living in the diaspora during the COVID-19 pandemic? Mm -hmm.
2: Yeah, that's a good question. This chapter is actually very much tied to my own experience of the pandemic. So the book was pretty much completed, or the the latter stage of the book was pretty much completed during the pandemic. Actually, I well, along with other people who suffered from the kind of pandemic lockdowns as well as the kind of anti-Asian racism. So that was a shared experience. But uh, so in 2020, that was in a first year, first stage of the pandemic. Nobody knew what it was and how to do with it. There was a lot of panic. At the same time, the Chinese communities all over the world were facing a lot of in a way, discrimination. So some Chinese artists based in Europe, based outside China, responded to the issue through their performance. And of course, when theater states were closed, what do they do? They perform online. So a lot of them simply actually, well, opened a kind of screening, uh streaming room uh, and stream them performance online, for example, on Christmas Eve and Christmas Day, during uh, the time between Christmas and New Year, the world, a London-based artist, basically performed eating of instant noodle actually, all, uh, online. So what she also did was that she talked about her own experience, her own journeys, her own emotions every day, invoking a sense of in a similarity or shared experience amongst the audiences. So that type of vulnerability seems to be also a type of strength, a power in itself. It connects people. It makes people realize actually those identities, the stupid identity categories, do not matter. Really, it's our shared experience, I shared, in a way, destiny, actually, in a, under in a way, this terrible what, uh, conditions that matter, that binds us together. So that's Zenghorong. And then Fan Po again, in his burning years, he's burning flat. He experienced racism and who basically used his camera to record the racist abuse he has experienced. And then he made that into a film, a short film. But in that film, he uses humor and irony to talk about how coronavirus doesn't divide us, but it's racism and it's a prejudice of discrimination that divides people. I think those are powerful things. What they are using art and performance as, as medium to say to the society, so look, there are other narratives and these are the ordinary people, so wherever you are from, and uh, we are sharing this experience. And also, what's also interesting is that all these performances actually use food as an important element, so either eating instant noodles or kind of cooking, uh, which is a kind of very spicy noodle from Wuhan. So uh, eating becomes a way for people to understand and connect to each other during the pandemic. This also counter to the narrative of the kind of stigmatization of Asian food, like asian people eat everything, anything and dirty things, et cetera. So that's why they get virus and so on and so forth. So in a way, actually, I think that this kind of in-person and digital performance using the food element functions as a type of activism. And of course, art and performance is a very important a uh, 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 tool, actually, for people to start reaching out to each other
1: and talk to each other. Okay, thank you so much for your answer. Again, so at the end of our talk today, I want to directly talk to our audience. So for any of our listeners with any kind of interest in the Contemporary Chinese Society and post social Chinese Society or queer and uh, LGBTQ community uh, being East Asia, in Asia in general sense, um, I think this book, um, Dr. Bao's book, Contemporary Chinese Queer Performance, is a fantastic book. It must be of interest. And as a, I would say as a historian of gender and sexuality in China, I personally recommend that you consider buying a copy of this. I want to repeat the title of the book again Buy a copy of Contemporary Chinese Queer Performance, the fantastic book. So this is a master, I think it's master read book for anyone interested in Chinese society today. So at the end of our talk today, I want to say thank you for Dr. Bao to join us to
2: introduce his fantastic book. So thank you. Have a good day. Thank you. Thank you, Shuan and everybody for your listening, for your wonderful hosting.